Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I am your host, Brad Hicks, and this is the Spooky SLV Podcast. Let's get started. All right, ladies and gentlemen, um, just a forward before we get going. Um, during this recording, I made a lot of mistakes, and for some odd reason, I can't edit them out. <laughs> it's giving me fits. So it's going to sound, I don't know, it sounds like I'm having a stroke in a couple of them. It's kind of funny. You might get a kick out of it. I don't know. But um, uh, just so you know, there are mistakes in this one that I couldn't edit out for some reason, so I'm just going to leave them as is. Um, <laughs> have tempted it give me some feedback on it if you would um you can write me emails at um spooky slv podcast at gmail.com and let me know what you think of it please i really would like some feedback on that one i'm gonna have to figure out a way to maybe edit them before i put them on to anchor here um but let's get going Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Brad Hicks. I am back. I apologize for the sporadic episodes. Um, I'm trying to get back into the swing of things. Still not feeling my best, apparently. I've been sick for the past couple of days, so. Uh, and then just forgot last week. <laughs> just having issues. Tonight, we're only going to have um, probably a couple stories. One from the Big Sky Ghost, the Montana Ghost Stories, and then probably one from Christopher O'Brien's books. Um, it's either going to be that or it's going to be a really long one out of the Mysteries and uh, uh, Miracles of New Mexico by Jack Coots. Uh, so, you know, uh, we'll get going on it. And I hope to get you back to listening more often. And I hope I get these out every week like I was doing. Like I said, trying to keep, catch back up is just not an easy thing. I've got so many other things I need to get done. But um, let's get going. Right, ladies and gentlemen, the first story we have is from Big Sky Ghosts, Eerie True Tales of Montana, Volume 1 by Deborah D. Munn. And the story's name is Some Ghosts Are Good Guys. Many people believe that, by definition, all ghost stories are frightening, that there's no way spooks can return from the great beyond without scaring the wits out of anybody unlucky enough to get in their way. Still, other people confuse spirits of the dead with demons and, for that reason, believe that all supernatural manifestations are inherently evil. Those who have such prejudices against our spectral friends might decide to change their views after reading the following three stories about good and loving spirits, who return just long enough to comfort, reassure, and help the living. The first count comes from Catherine O'Connell of Helena, who has a very special relationship with her grandmother. As Catherine herself describes it, the two were connected, at times even communicating telepathically. When I was going to college, I'd often make plans with friends to see a movie or go somewhere at at the last minute. Something would make me decide not to go, Catherine explained. Sometimes my friends got angry with me, saying that I wasn't dependable. And inevitably, whenever that happened, the phone would ring, and I knew even before picking it up that it was my grandmother calling, wondering if I wanted to go out with her. 
When she died, I was very sad, but I still felt her wonderful presence all around me. Catherine Recop. I remember going with the family to see her one last time before the funeral service. As I walked up to the casket, I thought how beautiful she looked lying there. Her body was dead, but I became aware somehow that her real being, her soul, had risen up so that it was hovering just above and behind the coffin. And then, as plainly as if she were standing right next to me, I heard her laugh and say, well, it's not as bad as I thought it would be. <laughs> I started to laugh, too, and of course everybody around me thought I'd lost my mind, Catherine said. Obviously, none of them heard what I did, but I was to have more contact with my grandmother in the days to come. For a long time after her funeral, I often woke up in my bedroom to see a golden globe, a ball of light, and I knew it was her spirit. I'm sure that I wasn't dreaming. In fact, the glowing sphere appeared so often in my room that I finally had to say, Grandma, I love you, but I, but you can't stay here. You must go on. That was two or three years ago, and I've never had the experience since then. I believe that after she died, she still wanted to be with me and to let me know that everything was all right on the other side. Vicki Hunkinson of Deer Lodge has a similar story about her grandfather, Diedrich Madison Dyer, who lived in Vancouver, Washington at the time of his death. Originally from eastern Tennessee, Madison, as everyone called him, had at one time driven the mail wagon from Butte to Dillon to Virginia City. His granddaughter described him as a big, big man, one of those wonderful people whom everybody loved. Vicki was 12 years old when her grandfather died in April of 1962, and until then, no one in her family had ever paid much attention to and... Oh. Vicky was 12 years old when her grandfather died in April of 1962, and until then, no one in her family had ever paid much attention to ghosts. But just the day after he died, my family and I were sleeping in our little two-room house in Butte. She began, it was a quiet place, an old place, with floors that creaked whenever anyone walked on them. My mother and stepfather slept in the front room on a hide-a-bed, and we kids slept out on the back porch. My parents were suddenly awakened in the dead of night by footsteps clomping across the floor. She said, these were heavy, loud steps made by a very large person. So my folks knew immediately that we, weren't, that we kids weren't making the noise. Mom and Dad looked over to the doorway between the front room and the kitchen. They saw something misty and white filling the space, almost like a fog. They heard a voice talking, apparently to someone else that they couldn't see. Mom listened for a while, then whispered, I think it's Daddy. By this time, even my skeptical, step, skeptical stepfather was getting a little scared. Vicky said he sat up in bed and looked again at the doorway. Then he said, Madison, and water, whatever had been there disappeared instantly. From that time on, my stepfather has believed in ghosts. Vicky's memories of that night are just as vivid as those of her parents, because she too was visited by the kindly spirit. I didn't hear him talking because she was, because... I didn't hear him talking, but I woke up when he gently touched my shoulder and then sat down on the bed. She recalled, at first I thought my little brother was sleepwalking and trying to climb into bed with me again. And then I opened one eye and saw a strange foggy iridescence. I remember thinking, well, this is a strange dream, but I feel as if Grandpa is here. It was a very comforting experience, not frightening at all. So I just rolled over and went back to sleep. I discovered later that my sister had awakened to catch a glimpse of him too. Vic, Vicky continued, but even more amazing 
was that on his very night, my grandfather's spirit appeared to other family members in different locations. Madison's children and grandchildren were scattered all over the western United States, Vicki explained, and only when the family members gathered for his funeral did they discover that he had made visits to each of them. The evening after the services, all the relatives got together at one house, and one of them mentioned seeing Grandpa. And then we all confessed that we had had the same experience. Mom's youngest brother in Vancouver said that the spirit opened up all the bedroom doors and then went in to check on everybody. Vicky said Grandpa was first into the children's room and then into the adults, where he nearly gave my uncle a heart attack. My aunt was frightened, too, and crawled down onto the floor of the bed to hide under the covers. And when the door shut again, but not before they heard Grandpa say to some unseen presence, Well, I'm ready to go home now. Let's go. And then he left. He waited until the next night to visit my grandmother, Vicky said, and he returned to her twice. So we all had contact with him after his death. The experience had made me realize that we don't actually lose people when they die, and that there really is some kind of afterlife. Parapsychologists record many instances of such visitations occurring just hours or days after someone has died, as well as at the exact moment of passing. One likely reason for psychic phenomenon close to the time of death is that this is a transitional period for a soul leaving one world and entering the next. But ghosts are often known to manifest themselves years after the physical lives have ended. Consider, for example, what happened more than 20 years ago to Malcolm McDonald of Nirata, Nirata, Montana. Malcolm knew how to ride a horse by the time he was three or four years old and usually enjoyed participating in cattle drives with the other members of his family. But on one drive, he was five or six, he became separated from his father and his older sister, Lori. Malcolm was so young at the time that he now has trouble remembering all the details. But Lori, whose last name is now Meeks, has forgotten neither his dad getting lost nor the strange story he told afterward. Dad had always told Malcolm to stay on the trail, and if he got lost or frightened, he was to give the horse its head so that it would go straight back to my Uncle Archie's house, she explained. We all went off in different directions, and later that afternoon we rode down to meet each other. We couldn't find Malcolm. We started to worry, so we rode on over to my uncle's house where we found my little brother waiting for us. We just assumed that he had followed Dad's advice without allowing the horse to take him there, and it wasn't until breakfast the next morning that we heard what really happened. Malcolm said that he was riding down in the creek bottom where there was a lot of brush. He knew that bears had been spotted there, and he got scared when he realized he was lost. But then, just as it started to get dark, a man on a horse came up to him and led him to Uncle Archie's place. My dad thought, naturally, that was one of the neighbors must have helped Malcolm, and he wondered which one it was. Malcolm described his rescuer as a tall man with very black hair. That ruled out one neighbor, who was bald. Then my brother said the man who guided him to Uncle Archie's had had a mustache and very blue eyes. That description didn't fit anyone around Nierada, and none of us could figure out who Malcolm's good Samaritan might have been. Dad began asking him if the man was the person, was this person or that one, and each time Malcolm said no. But he did remember that the mysterious man had a pretty, pretty horse, a big dapple gray one. Nobody knew of anyone around Nierada who owned a horse like that until Malcolm said, I remember something else, too. The horse's name was Gray Eagle. As soon as he said that, my grandmother in her late 80s at the time looked very shocked. Tommy, she said to my dad, that was your father's horse's name. 
You can imagine how stunned we all were when we all sat around the kitchen table that morning. And to this day, Lori added, we're convinced that the man who guided Malcolm to Uncle Archie's house was a grandfather who died long before my brother was born. He was one of the early homesteaders. He was quite old, over 60, when my father was born. He owned land for miles around the original homestead and where Uncle Archie's ranch would be later. So it made perfect sense to my grandfather's spirit to be in that area, and Malcolm's description of a tall man with black hair and blue eyes fit in perfectly. There's no way my brother could have known these things about his grandfather, because our grandmother almost never talked about him. Lori insisted. And before that morning, she had never even told Dad the name of his father's horse or what color it was. What are we to make of these three grandparents who returned from death for one last visit with those they had left behind? If one of our jobs in the hereafter is to watch over loved ones still on Earth, who would take on this role more willingly than a doting grandmother or grandfather? And if spirits of the dead really do serve in this guardian angel capacity, maybe we should overcome our prejudice against them. After all, some ghosts are good guys. That's a great story. I like that one. <laughs> but it's mostly because after my grandmother died, I had a dream. And, it, and I'm sure it was just a dream. Um, I love my grandmother. She was one of the best people in the world. And, and anybody who knew my grandmother will absolutely agree with you. <laughs> There's maybe one or two people that she didn't like that didn't or didn't like her. I mean, hell, at her wedding, at her wedding, excuse me, her funeral, which was held in the biggest room of the chapel of the Mormon church in Lahara, they had to open up the bifold doors and there was standing room only. They got every single chair they had. And it was still standing room only with several hundred people. They all went to the service. But um, a couple days after my grandma died, and I've never told anyone this, um, her and her brother were both killed in a car accident coming back from seeing their sister, my Aunt Elma, or Aunt Jean. She hated being called Elma. But uh, <laughs> Aunt Jean, uh, who was in the hospital in Walsenburg. And um, they were coming back. It was a snowy night, and it was slick roads. They lost control, and my grandmother was unfortunately ejected from the car. Uh, broke her neck on impact. Um, but anyway, a couple of days later, I, I was laying in bed, and I, was, I, I dozed off. I know I did. I'm sure I did. I, I, I used to always fall asleep with the TV on because I'd watch a movie until I got drowsy, and then I'd just let myself fall asleep. I'd set the sleep timer and go. And I woke up what well, in the dream, I guess. I woke up and my grandma was sitting on my bed, tapping my leg, going, Hey, wake up. And I wake up and I look, I'll go, Hey grandma. I didn't think anything of it. She goes, Hey, I want you to look after your mom and take care of everybody else, okay? I was like, Well, I'll do what I can. <laughs> but I can't guarantee that, Grandma. And she goes, That's okay. Just try what you can. And we'll talk to you soon. That part kind of scared me. But soon in her existence could be something different from mine obviously because that was quite a long time ago that she died but i love my grandma and i do miss her every single day so i know grandparents are always around and she was an honorary woman anyway so if anything bad happens around the house it's kind of funny pretty sure it's her <laughs> almost positive anyway that's on to the next
Okay, the next uh, story comes from Enter the Valley, written by Mr. Christopher O'Brien, who was gracious enough to let me read stories from his books. They're great, by the way. If you ever get your hands on the copies of Mysterious Valley and Enter the Valley, they're great. This one's called The Golden Horde. The Mysterious Valley left little doubt that historically the San Luis Valley has had more than its share of unexplained occurrences. Combine this documentation with countless little-known myths and legends and this remote region's documented history, and you have served before you a feast of blatant examples of the mysterious, the outrageous, and the sublime. These mysteries extend far beyond weird lights in the sky and strangely slain warm-blooded animals. There are many wonderful secrets and traditions found in the San Luis Valley that need ex examination. When scrutinizing subcultural bioregional beliefs relating to the unknown, one invariably finds myth, myths and legends unique to a particular bioregion, and I feel the San Luis Valley could be considered a classic example. Early on in my investigation, I was fascinated to hear stories and rumors of beliefs linking UFOs to treasure. In the southern portions of the San Luis Valley, when a UFO is spotted, the lucky witness office immediately, often immediately, contacts all of his relatives. They watch the object closely, hoping it will hover. If it does hover over a specific spot, they believe that underneath the object, treasure can be found. Once a location has been identified, they dash to the area with picks and shovels and start digging. Believe it or not, treasure may have been found in this manner. Although I have no proof that this technique has actually been used to find treasure, several sources have sworn they know of persons who have successfully utilized this method of UFO-inspired treasure hunting. El Dorado and Quivera. Doing a bit of research, I have uncovered an impressive body of data relating to undiscovered treasure waiting to be found here. Most of the stories are tied to early Spanish and French explorations of the southern Sangre Cristo Mountains. Spanish exploration up the Rio Grande Valley in the 16th century is considered the earliest incursion by Europeans into North America. The, conquist the conquistadors, fueled by dangerous brand of xenophobic missionary, zeal and unquenchable thirst for precious metals quickly re reconnoitered the northern reaches of their newfound territory at first the native pueblo, pueblo and plains indians welcomed the strangers possibly because they were softened to the europeans arrival by sister marie agreda the native's blue lady they didn't have much choice riding large snorting animals clothed in metal armed with barking sticks of death the spaniards struck terror into the simple natives quite different from our angelic bilocating nun. The soldiers, changing, charging with their lusty shouts of Santiago and glow, gold glory and God, must have been an imposing sight to indigenous peoples. But culture shock in, inevitably gave way to resentment, and many Indians, especially holders of traditional knowledge, soon chaffed, against the underneath, soon chaffed underneath the puritanical Catholic yoke of the priests and the gold-hungry mercenaries. The Indians quickly realized that one thing above all compelled the armored, diseased, bearded white men to venture into the forbidding semi-arid desert wilderness, gold. A Spanish general in an honest moment reportedly told an Aztec chief, the Spaniards have a disease of the heart for which gold is the specific remedy. The Spanish obsession with precious metals dictated that much of their relentless explorations enforced them to overcome incredible hardships and sacrifice. Many of the forays north during the first 200 years of exploration were not well documented, and most likely undisclosed clandestine expeditions were mounted. It can be assumed that at least a few of these 
greed-driven forays into extreme northern New Mexico and farther north into Colorado's vast mineral belt were met with success. Blessed or cursed, with a lifelong fascination and the so-called thrill of discovery, I, too, have always been enamored by the thought of finding treasure of any kind. Many of you, I'm sure, can relate to this. I confess that it doesn't matter if it's the precious stones, Indian artifacts, vertebrae fossils, meteorites, or precious minerals. I have always been fascinated by the concept of discovering the many fabulous treasures contained on, this, on our planet. When this amateur fossil hunter and wannabe prospector moved out west to the east coast, moved out west from the east coast, in 1989, little did he know he was moving to one of the country's legendary treasure locales. During my first summer in Crestona, I happened to meet an old Hispanic man passing through town. His colorful clothes, gear, and demeanor revealed that he was a treasure hunter. His sparkling eyes and wrinkled, weather-beaten face reflected the years he had spent on his elusive quest. I managed to get him talking about some of the local area's legends, and he solemnly told me a couple of stories of the mountains towering two miles away. One of his accounts was a lost Spanish mine with a large wooden door, possibly decorated with a Maltese cross. His theory was that the door had been hidden by a rock slide, and his enthusiasm and theories re-sparked a serious interest in me that continues to this day. Captured by my professed enthusiasm for our area's rich treasure legends in 1990, I was asked by current Baca ranch owner Gary Boyce <laughs> to write an article concerning the many fantastic treasure legends for his short-lived Needles newspaper. He mentioned hearing about a very low-key multi-million dollar search effort that had been launched on the Baca ranch when owned by the American Water Development Incorporated with no reported success. I began searching and gathering knowledge together for the enigmatic stories in a concerted effort to confirm the legends and write a truly riveting article. I've learned that the greater San Luis Valley region is one of the oldest settled areas in Colorado, northern New Mexico, and quietly features dozens of Spanish treasure legends and numerous lost mines and lost treasure accounts. Combine these legendary mysteries and several known notorious lost robbery hordes, you have an area with many potentially lucrative secrets to investigate, maybe more than any specific location in the Great Southwest. Much to my surprise, I also found some documentation of these mythical claims of treasure that have circulated around our section of the Sangres since the early 17th century and many more additional legends and stories that I could possibly include in a 2,000-word article. Although publisher Boyce folded needles just before my article was to be published, I've never lost my fascination for the subject. During the course of the next several years, I had my eyes and ears open for any conclusive data firmly establishing a, a Spanish presence in the San Luis Valley prior to the acknowledged 1692 Diego de Vargas expedition. I've I have always been fascinated by history, and I wondered why the Spanish didn't officially venture north for so many years. When the conquistadors and ever-present Catholic missionaries first established a, pres a presence in Taos at the extreme southern end of the valley during the mid-1600s, the vast area north of Taos was a place of mystery and awe. 
Shamans and young warriors on vision quests were generally the only travelers who ventured north from Taos. It is a place many Indians believed all thought originates. To the east, the Plains Indians considered the valley to be where the dead souls go. Taos is located at what was considered the extreme northern reach of the Spanish power, and the Spanish seldom ventured north of the Pueblo until the resulting Diego de Vargas expedition that was mounted to subjugate the Pueblo people's 12 years after the 1680 Taos uprising. Excuse me. When the Pueblo Indians revolted, although the Diego de Vargas expedition is considered the first Spanish incursion into south-central Colorado, others have ventured north. But it was known that Diego de Vargas Diego de Vargas accompanied by 100 soldiers, 70 settlers with families, 18 Franciscans and Indian allies marched up the Rio Grande that is into what is now Corneas and Costilla counties, then returned to Santa Fe. Dr. Marilyn Childs, an eminent archaeoastronomer, recalls an aside mentioned by a college professor while she was a student. One of my professors at the University of Washington who taught classes in archaeology was Dr. Alex Krieger. He was one of the scholars who did lots of research on the different Spanish expeditions. He knew I was interested in ufology, ufology, so he looked up some of the information of the, in the chronicles for me. Apparently, the Spanish were seeing lights around Mount Blanca in the Sangre de Cristo range uh, even back in the 1500s. And they also heard some kind of sounds that said were coming from the ground. A long, improbable 87 years passed before the next official expedition north into Colorado. The 1779 campaign of New Mexico Governor Juan Batista de Anza against Comanche Chief uh, Cuerno Verde, or Greenhorn, is considered the next Spanish push into the region. I found it curious that one of the oldest continuously inhabited dwellings some three stories tall in North America, was located at the south end of the valley in, at the Taos Pueblo. And yet, officially, the Spanish never explored north into the rest of the San Luis Valley for more than 200 years. As human nature would dictate, there were undoubtedly many secret missionary forays up to Del Norte, the north. Over the years, the discovery of Spanish cannon barrels, conquistador helmets, Ara. Arastras, smelters, and enigmatic carvings, such as the multi-tross at the mouth of the upper Spanish caves, fueled the colorful legends of lost Spanish treasure. These same stories were heard by the original Colorado Gold Rush prospectors as they arrived in Colorado in the late 1850s and early 1860s. The first legend of the Southwest begins for Europeans after Alvar Nuez. Oh, Christ. The first legend of the Southwest begins for Europeans when Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca saw an Indian give a cascabel de cobre, a copper rattle, to one of his companions. This simple happening, combined with the tales that he had heard about gold-paved cities, created the legends of Kivira. Stories continued to circulate and accumulate, not only of cities paved with gold, but of the mountains of solid ore that take and lakes shimmering with quicksilver. In 1692, however, the story of the fabulous mountain not only reached the ears of Diego de Vargas, but also those of Viceroy who sent four specimens of a substance thought to be quicksilver. Some historians go as far as to suggest the legends of uh, Cerro Azul 
was the primary reason for the reconquest of New Mexico by Don Diego de Vargas. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where we're going to stop tonight. We will pick up and continue that particular story next week, along with, uh, you know, others. <laughs> Thanks. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I, that is me calling it quits for tonight. Um, hope you enjoyed the show. Again, I apologize for the mistakes. I'm having issues editing and mount. I'm not sure why. Normally, it's not that difficult with um, with Anchor's little simple editing tool. Um, we'll figure out something else. Out. I'm going to put out put this out again. Um, I haven't done it for a while. Please, if uh, you enjoy the show and uh, you want to hear it more often, and I know it sounds crappy to beg for money on the podcast, but it does help me out. It helps me get the podcast going, keeps it going. There is on my Spotify homepage a link that will send you to the support page. And you can donate as a one-time thing, whatever amount you want to. Or if you want to do a monthly thing that starts out at $0.99, cents, goes up to four ninety nine or nine ninety nine per month. And again, I don't expect anyone to pay me 10 bucks a month because my podcast kind of sucks. I have fun with it, but it sucks. <laughs> so, you know, whatever you uh, feel like doing, I would appreciate. I really would. It'll help me get uh, better equipment, maybe uh, a nice little editing software so I can record everything onto that and do it otherwise. I, I've got one on my computer, but uh, my computer doesn't have enough memory to do that. So who knows? Maybe I can get enough money to get some memory for that. And as we're moving on, Thank you in advance if you decide you want to donate and help me out. And I also want you to show, show some love to Andres Herrera. I say this a lot, and I say it on almost every one of my shows. He's the one that gives me the opening, uh, the intro music and the outro music, and he's also the one that convinced me to go into doing a podcast. Great guy. He's been my buddy for a long time. I was friends with his older brother going through high school. He was one of my best friends. Uh known andres for years he's a great musician so you can follow him on spotify at decibels deep podcast and entropy in motion music like i said he's a good musician he's got some great songs out there and uh, you can also follow him by those same two monikers on instagram and you can find him now on facebook under entropy in motion music again great guy you got to listen to his stuff. So subscribe to him, show him some love. And to the 10 people that have heard that a thousand times, <laughs> I appreciate you too. Just listen, pass it on to others. If you can't, you know, donate to the podcast, share it with other people. You know, get more people listen. The more people that listen, the better. But as it goes, I'll say good night. Thanks, folks. <laughs>